This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey, Sensitive Rebels, it's Steve. I hope you're well. On today's episode, our guest is Maria Gronofsky. I've known Maria a long time, and she's always a fun person to talk to. She's got a wide range of interests, skills, and experiences, and you're going to hear a lot about her journey in our conversation today. One of the things I especially wanted to draw your attention to is the ways in which Maria has found success. A lot of those involve not really following conventional wisdom or the typical way of doing things. And uh, Maria has found her own path to do some of these things and really learn to listen to what works for her. And I think that's a really valuable lesson for all of us who can sometimes be a little too prone to listening to others' input and opinions. And well, that can cause us to get in our own way. And now... Here's my conversation with Maria. So my guest today on the Sensitive Rebel podcast is Maria Gronofsky. Maria is a freelance writer for businesses in complex fields like law and medicine. She's also the co-founder of writeandprosper.com, a site dedicated to helping early stage medical writers grow a sustainable business. In her former life, Maria was a patent litigator representing clients in a variety of innovative industries, including pharmaceuticals, biotech, telecom, and semiconductors. Prior to that, she was a bench scientist earning a PhD in medical and molecular genetics from the University of Toronto by making a mouse without one of its genes. And well, if you're not intimidated yet, I'll tell you, I am. But in addition, Maria is an avid traveler, and among her most memorable trips are a week-long horseback trek in Ireland, Iceland, not Ireland, a month's stay at a Florentine convent, a weekend trip to Istanbul, and an exploration of the Canadian wilderness by canoe. Welcome to the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, Maria. Tell me, what are you rebelling against? I think I'm rebelling against the notion that working hard is a virtue. With my travel schedule, obviously it needs to to be a priority, working smarter, not working harder. But in general, I think, especially in the United States, It seems like hard work has become, it's a badge of honor. And I think that is somewhat misguided in where we are in our evolution. You know, when we were farmers and hunters, gatherers, yeah, I mean, hours in the field meant the difference between surviving and starving, right? But as knowledge workers, our brains are not meant to log in. 10, 12, 15 hour days. So that's that's what I'm rebelling against. And I would assume that at least some of your, your background in the legal world might might have informed that a little bit. But tell me kind of how you've come to that awareness and to that that stance. I think I've always been much more productive when I had periods of downtime, a long downtime. And some people, my mom included, thought that I did nothing during those times. And probably in some ways I did, but in a lot of ways it was reflective time. It was just thinking things through. And for me, what has always worked is thinking about things, figuring out the most efficient way to do them, and then doing them in the shortest amount of time. So when I write, for example, what usually happens is I don't outline. I outline if a client 
once an outline, but usually what happens is I will write the thing and then <laughs> go back and figure out what the outline is and provide that to them. And then, you know, then later provide the actual work or amend it as they want. But in general, you know, my process is I think about all of these things. And then when I sit down to write, usually my first draft is pretty close to my final. That's just the way my brain works. So it's, it's, it's a little difficult to conform to a world where you constantly have to show your work. So tell me a little bit about your uh, career journey, because it's quite a, quite an interesting and varied one and how that got to the point of you deciding to do what you're doing now. I followed in a way a path of least resistance. I was good at science. I always wanted to be a lawyer, but it turned out that I wasn't actually very good at the humanities at the undergraduate level, but I was pretty good at science. So I stayed in science and I enjoyed it. And then I figured, you know, graduate school because that's easier than anything else. So I went there and enjoyed the work as well, but I always wanted to be a lawyer. I don't know why. I, I blame old Perry Mason episodes on it <laughs> because not only did I want to be a lawyer, but I wanted to be an American lawyer and I wasn't even in the United States at the time. So after finishing my PhD, I moved down to the States to, to do a postdoc at the NIH. And that's when I realized it's now or never. I'm either going to go to law school or I'm not. And so I went to law school and, you know, just because of my background, it made sense to do patent litigation. And so that's what I did for over a decade. Frankly, I just got burned out. I really did. The hours were pretty tremendous. The stress was pretty unrelenting and I decided I wanted to do something else. In the same time, I wrote a novel. Of course, it was a legal thriller. And one of the partners in the firm where I worked at the time read it and decided that I can write anything. So, you know, a brief in a day, Maria can write it or the website, Maria can write it or the marketing materials, Maria can write it. And that's when it suddenly clicked that, oh, maybe I can just make a living writing. It wasn't quite so simple because I still had that mental block that writers are starving artists and it's impossible to make a living just writing. But then one marketing director at a law firm mentioned me to another marketing director at another law firm and I got work that way and then another and then eventually maybe by the fifth or sixth project it suddenly clicked that oh I'm actually making a good living doing this and that's that's how I became a lot more intentional about this being my business so where did the whole writer starving artist story come from for you I don't know I think it's I mean it's it, obviously if you're going to be writing fiction, that's a very competitive field. And that's what I always thought writers were. Like that that was the mental image that I had. And, you know, that was the the ideal that I thought of in terms of writing. And it just didn't occur to me that writing is a skill that so many businesses, so many institutions, enterprises need. Right. So that's where the the mental image came from. And so Having that that story, you know, about like this is what a writer is, got expanded by these experiences of writing in the context of your, you know, your legal work and that and started to see, oh wait, there's actually all kinds of writing. And so it took that story that you had and it kind of blew that up from your own experience, it sounds like. Yeah, it does. And obviously it, you know, it's a very different type of writing. And 
the one thing that I am still working on is translating my professionalism in terms of my client work and the kind of writing I do there to a professionalism in my fiction writing. Because I wrote that one novel, I published it, and that was 10 years ago, and I haven't gotten back to writing a second one. I mean, I've, I kept starting it and stopping it. And for some silly reason, I keep waiting for inspiration, which I know is not the way to actually get any kind of writing done. But somehow, as I said, like it doesn't translate from my hard-worn experience. Like my hard-worn experience in writing professionally doesn't translate to fiction yet. So why do you think that is? What do you think that gap is? I think that I still put fiction into a different bucket of processing. So to me, it's almost like fiction is, for lack of a better term, art, even though I write legal thrillers, which many would not consider art. But, you know, so, so, and art still has that idea of you need inspiration, you need some kind of divine grace or the muse, whatever that is, which as I'm saying this, I find it really laughable because I'm also, you know, a trained classical pianist. And I know that that's just not the thing when you create beautiful music, because you spend years training, you spend years doing very, very unglamorous and un, un inspired things like scales and etudes and you know just like honing your technique and honing your understanding of musical theory etc right so all of that is something that i understand logically perfectly well it just somehow hasn't translated into actual but in chair fiction writing so it's one of those things that there's a intellectual grasp of it but the emotional piece hasn't quite clicked in yet it sounds like right exactly well so to kind of shift gear at least for a minute into emotions and we'll probably weave it back in here is tell me like from your, your recollection, at least what were some of the, the things like the, the teachings or lessons that you remember kind of getting as it relates to feelings and emotions and their role in life and work as you were kind of growing up and then going through your education? That's an interesting question. Again, I think I had a split understanding of emotions. So art music, all of those things were on the emotional side, right? Science, law, math are not on the emotional side, right? And so there seems to be that, you know, that whole, there's no crying in baseball. I kind of internalized it as there's no crying in the lab. There's no crying in the law firm, et cetera, except that I, I actually did. <laughs> I cried in both of those places, but it, it definitely felt like a weakness to bring your emotions to work. So your novel, you wouldn't have been able to write without emotions, but that works because you're for you, you're kind of in a division that's like, okay, well that's in the art realm. So it's okay to have feelings there, but really look, look at, you know, some of your, your professional writing, we'll call it. Don't you think that there is a way in which feelings inform that as well though? Oh, absolutely. These days I weave emotion and feelings into my writing for clients as well, especially when I do things like case studies, you know, when I interview clients and I actually ask them about what made them happy about the cert the kind of work that they received from, you know, from their vendors or, you know, what made them unhappy with other kinds of work, et cetera. So, so there's, a, there is actually a lot of emotion that comes in to writing professionally. You definitely need to unearth the emotion because that's really 
where the importance of whatever you're writing is. So the topic of emotion and kind of its role in this work is a tricky one, it sounds like for you. It is if I have to sit down and analyze it and discuss it with with you, for example. <laughs> Actually creating the work in the right way is not is not difficult. So in the moment while you're doing it, this isn't something that's kind of going on in your head back and there's not some back and forth going on in your head. So how or why do you think it is that in those spaces you're able to get into that flow where the emotion piece kind of you know fits in? How does how does that happen, do you think? I think that it is a learned response. So you write something and you get feedback from clients or from whoever you write for. And you know, and I and I kept noticing that what resonated was that emotional undertone, even though they may not have recognized it. But they they would compliment me on things that sounded suspiciously like they really liked the emotion. <laughs> so, you know, that so that is where I think it was just positive feedback and getting the reassurance that this is I'm on the right track in terms of the kind of writing that I do. And so that's that's how it became the thing. Right. So just kind of an integration of of that feedback, even if it was just always a indirector. It, it's kind of like this thing where it's like, it's not okay to talk about the emotional piece of this, but it's there. Right. Well, because it's, you know, I mean, and I understand it. Like, for example, you know, if you're if you're writing for a client like a law firm, right? What they want to get across is their expertise. They want to get across that they obviously care about their clients. They care about the outcomes, et cetera. They don't necessarily want to project an overly emotional image. And I think that that's valid. The amount of emotion you inject into things is is really important. So coming back to the the topic of, of burnout, which, you know, something as you pointed out, family law attorneys, but certainly I think anyone in, in the legal field, unless you're kind of doing your own thing, burnout's a very real risk with the way that that industry operates. And I, you know, that was a challenge for you. So coming back to, to your history there, how did you come? Well, one, how did you become aware that like, that's, you know, what was happening to you and two, how did you deal with that? So let me take the second question first, which is I didn't deal very well. I kind of tried to shirk my work and I really resented going into the office and I was not a joy to be around. That's for sure. And that that's really, it was really hard to concentrate. It was really hard to pay attention. It was really hard to fulfill my tasks. And that is a spiraling thing because then you feel like you're not doing a good job and you feel really embarrassed. And so there's that cascade there. How did I know it was a burnout? I, I don't... I don't know that I actually necessarily named it that at the time. As you had, you know, kind of the awareness of this isn't really working and what kept you from taking action to break this, this cycle that we were getting kind of pulled into? Why didn't you step out of it? So I, I didn't know how. I mean, that is the bottom line. I just didn't know how, you know, that's, you know, so so it's kind of a, it was kind of a cycling thing. So I would you know, get more burnout and I'll, maybe I'll take a vacation and for a couple of weeks coming back, I'll be better. And then, you know, it will start over again, et cetera. So that was the first thing. The second thing is, I think there is that sunk cost, right? I mean, this is not a career that you just pick up, right? I mean, you've spent years in school, you've spent hours at work, you've 
you know, you've really invested in this career. And so how do you walk away from it? Right. There, there is that feeling of surely I can make it work. I mean, I, I've invested too much to just not make it work. Did you see other people who were making it work? The short answer is yes. Some people genuinely love what they do. They, they really enjoy just about every aspect of the work. They're also a lot more comfortable, I guess, in adversarial settings, which for a litigator is just funny to say, but I'm not as much. And actually, a lot of litigators are very, very conflict averse, which is which sounds funny, but they're not conflict averse in the ritualized world of, you know, court hearings and depositions and all of that. But on that personal level, they're very conflict averse. Many of them are. So yeah, so so some people just just really love the work. They're comfortable with conflict. They really like the intellectual challenge of it. They love the money. You know, there there are lots of people that make it work for them. Are there, you know, moments in those people's lives where they they want to take a vacation? Sure. But I know a lot of people who, you know, they may not have continued in a big firm, but then they went out and they started their own law practice, right? I mean, they actually do genuinely enjoy that work. Right. And so for them, there's something that they get from it, perhaps that helps to kind of recharge them and keep them in place of having the energy. But that wasn't necessarily the case for you. I'm, I'm inferring reading between the lines here. There wasn't enough. Right. So I always think of it as the value to crap ratio. And (laughs) (laughs) for me, that ratio was definitely less than one. But for a lot of other people, it was definitely a lot more than one. So, you know, the value one for me, I just couldn't. The the equation just wasn't working. So for you, as you kind of had this awareness of this really isn't working, like what got you to the point of saying, all right, well, this clearly isn't working. I have to do something else. And did you, had you seen kind of the potential in writing before that, or was it in fact that kind of crisis that pushed you to look for a different alternative, do you think? I think I've always thought about different alternatives, but I wasn't absolutely sure. The thing that actually pushed me was a couple of people approached me to coach them business that a couple of lawyers did. And that's when I thought, oh, there is actually something else I could be doing. So I wasn't really thinking in terms of writing necessarily, but I thought there are alternatives to practicing law. And that's what gave me the the confidence to to do something different. Gotcha. So it was it was kind of brought to you as like, hey, here's here's an alternative thing. You went, oh wait, oh, there's something else I could do here. Yeah. With a lot of this, I'm hearing a sense of kind of taking actions because things were kind of brought to you or showed up or made sense. And what I'm wondering for you along the journey of your career is what role you've allowed wants, needs, passions to play in determining that. So going to law school was definitely my decision, right? There there was actually a lot of serious confusion among my science friends and even my family about why would you do that? Because I had a pretty promising career. I had the right publications. When I came to talk to my postdoctoral supervisor about going to law school, he said, I don't understand. You have publications. You will actually make it to a professorship. Like, why, why would you drop that? 
So that was definitely my own decision. And, you know, law school was so much fun in some ways. It's just, you know, you get to play with ideas and with esoteric topics because of the kind of courses I chose to take. So that that was definitely my decision. The downside of that, of course, is that when I realized that practicing law may not necessarily be for me, that made me seriously question my ability to make the right decisions. And that, I think, is where a lot of this feeling of, I don't necessarily know what's the best thing for me to do in terms of my career path has come has come up. So you have this idea that you have that you're like, oh, this seems cool. I'm really interested in this. But you get a bunch of people going like, why are you doing that? You do it. It doesn't seem to work out real well. It's really easy to see how that would make you go, I don't know what, almost literally, I don't know what I'm thinking. All right. I can't really trust myself. That's a really tough place to be for sure. Now, if you look back, what is it that you didn't know or didn't, where you didn't look that you should have? Like, what, what is the thing that you wish you knew then that you know now that would have helped inform you to, to follow a path that worked maybe a little bit better for you? Well, I know that I had a very idealized view of what a lawyer's day-to-day work is like. I know that. Even though I actually had informational conversations with people, you know, interviews with people, I actually did my due diligence. I didn't really have, you know, I didn't have lawyers in the family. I didn't have lawyers as friends, et cetera. So it's not like I was enmeshed in that world, but I think I did as much due diligence as I could. And you know, the funny thing is I actually worked at a law firm for a year before I actually went to law school. So because I had that scientific background, many law firms have some kind of a technical expert position where they hire you to do to work on patent law. And so in my mind was like, well, yeah, this is this is not exactly what I want to do, but I really want to be a litigator because of Perry Mason. And so this isn't really the kind of law that I'm going to be doing, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of mind games that we play with ourselves when we want something. When we have invested emotionally into a particular dream, you know, waking up and saying, maybe that wasn't quite right is really expensive emotionally speaking. So so back to your original question, I'm not sure that I could have done anything differently than I already did, except that I think I should have been a lot more hard-headed at the information I was getting as opposed to taking the information I was getting and kind of thinking, yeah, but that doesn't quite apply to me or I will be different or, you know, I'm a special snowflake and you know, life as a lawyer is going to be completely different for me. So that's that's where I think a lot of us fall into a trap. It sounds like, yeah, you got a little bit kind of caught up in some of the the idealistic sides of things, didn't bring the the other side. Now I'm wondering after this experience of going, okay, wow, this this really didn't work out. And then you kind of stopped trusting yourself. Did you kind of flip to the other side of taking a more kind of focusing on the, you know, the cynical side of things or negative side of things approach? Or how did you go about making decisions after that? And then how has that evolved to where you are today? I think there was a period where I don't know that it was cynical, but there was definitely a lack of confidence, right? There was just a sense that 
I don't know what I'm doing, even if I know what I'm doing. I think what really helped is getting back into writing full time and having that feedback loop with my clients and people really liking what I do, wanting to work more with me. And now I am much more deliberate about my career decisions again. So I've kind of learned to trust myself again. So about a year ago, around the start of the pandemic, you know, I used to only work as a writer for law firms. And I I have that other side business with a friend of mine where we, she's a medical writer and we help medical writers establish their careers. And one day I just looked over at how she was doing and she was just drowning in work and every other medical writer I knew was just drowning in work. And I thought, I have that old PhD. I can do this stuff. And that's how I ended up now writing for both. So my, my business is now pretty much equally split between medical writing and writing for law firms. And that was a very deliberate process and something that I was very, very comfortable with. And I remember specifically having this sense of maybe I don't know what I'm writing right now, but I will figure it out. It's, it's no different than any other writing project that I knew nothing about. And then I'll figure it out. Tell me a little bit about like, when you say deliberate, what does that process kind of look and feel like to you and, you know, deciding things to pursue career wise or otherwise? So I think I sat, well, I didn't think, I, I know I sat down and really decided for myself, what are important considerations when it comes to the type of project I will take on the type of client I will work with. Yeah. So those are, those are the things that kind of the bedrock principles that I feel very comfortable with. And if it doesn't quite fit either the project or the client, I can say, no, I'm sorry. Thank you. But of course, you know, now it's a lot easier when you have that established business and you have, you know, it's not like you don't know how you're going to make rent tomorrow. So Obviously, it it takes time to get to that kind of comfort level. So, as I said, like, I mean, the first thing is, what do I actually want to write, and what kind of clients do I want to write for? The second is really being comfortable with saying no or negotiating for what you want. The third is surveying the landscape and thinking about, you know, well, okay, so here are some possible clients that I may want to work with, let me approach them, right? And understanding that they may say no, or they may actually never respond at all. And that's, that's fine. You know, that's not about you. So having that proactive mindset of thinking through and, and actually taking those steps as opposed to having work come to you, really, it's somewhere, it's something that I'm very comfortable with right now. But paradoxically, what's, what's happened is that the moment I became a lot more comfortable being proactive and going after things, my favorite clients have actually increased the amount of work they want to give me. So it's almost like I have no space to take on these new clients. But it's it's all about the mindset, right? It's all about the fact that, you know, clients will come and go, their needs will change, and I will be okay. And so... No is a big part of this, both in being able to say no to people who aren't really a good fit or who you're not feeling inspired to work with, but also in learning to accept no 
when you get a rejection or, you know, someone isn't interested in working with you who you're pursuing. So tell me about how you emotionally and mentally have made yourself, I'll say more comfortable with or learned how to cope with no and more, maybe even more importantly, the threat of no, because I think that's really where a lot of people get jammed up. That's true. I think getting a big number of yeses is definitely helpful to the ego. No question about it. Obviously, if you're, you know, if you're sending out 50 emails or, wh- or however you're doing your outreach and you're getting 49 no's and one yes, that's very different than if you get that yes first. And then even if you get the 49 no's, that first yes makes a big difference. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I think the minute you start looking at who all is out there, right? You suddenly realize that the world is a big place. There are thousands of law firms. Just uh, the world is a big place. And all you need is a tiny action of that universe. You can't actually even get more than two or three or five if you're if you're a freelancer or if you're a solo. You just you just can't work for more than three, four, five clients at a time. So once you kind of play around with those numbers, it makes, it made sense to me, right? It's, it's realizing that the numbers are just irrefutable, right? And the other thing I think that is very, was very helpful to me is talking to others and realizing that, you know, getting a yes one in 10 times or getting a yes one in 20 times or whatever that, that number looks like, it's okay, right? That is okay. It's not that I am below average in my success rate. Because I think that's that's one of the things that trips us up a lot is this idea of what am I doing wrong? But if you normalize that experience, if you say to yourself, you know what, the best person I know at this is still getting one client out of every 10 tries, then you're like, okay, well, I'm getting, let's say one client over every 15 tries. Well, I'm not, I'm in the ballpark. And this is Something so you've hit really on, on two things here. One is about really understanding like what is you know, normal or typical, but two the mindset piece. And I think those are both areas where people can get so tripped up, right? We can get caught up in this this kind of lack of mindset instead of recognizing, yeah, there's, you know, especially today, like a nearly infinite number of potential clients out there. You mentioned the the mindset, and I realize also one other big shift is looking at all of this as an experiment. And as data. And that kind of takes actually, let's talk back about, you know, taking emotion out of things. And in a way, you know, you send out 10 letters, let's say, and you get a big fat zero. And you're like, okay, maybe this letter isn't very good. Maybe I need to tweak it. Right. If you look at it that way, then the sending out of the letters is your success. I would even challenge that that's actually taking the emotion out of it. I would just say it's just shifting the emotion because when you turn it into an experiment, your the emotion is about like, okay, I'm going to try something. I'm going to get some data. And that gives me the possibility of, you know, use, I can use that. And I can do something with it. It's just, you're shifting where your attachment is and it, you're shifting it to something you can control, right? How many letters I send out. I can't control the responses. So no, I think that that's a really good point. The, the shifting to an experimentation mindset makes such a huge difference for people. I find but I find that it's it's a bit of a toggle. Like I, ever so often, I have to remind myself of that and and go back because I tend to flip back into, you know, outcome mode. And then when I flip back to the process mode, then again, it it doesn't have that fraught 
feeling associated with it. Yeah, I think that's true for for most of us. And again, I think a lot of that's because we can have a lot of control over our process, but there's so much about outcome that really is out of our hands. But the more we refine our process, right, the more we can influence the outcome, you know? Right. And then on the, the normalization thing, I think this thing is huge. This is part of why I think it's so important for people to be able and willing to talk about these things, right? Because no one knows like what is a normal, you know, acceptance rate or yes rate, because it just doesn't get talked about or it often gets talked about in distorted ways. But I still think talking about it more really does help, right? Because it makes it like, oh, okay, there's nothing wrong with me. This is just a really low percentage play here. It doesn't mean it's not worth doing, but it means that, yeah, like 80% of the time I'm going to get a no, like no big deal. Like, okay, that's such an important thing to know because it really helps us change our story from what's wrong with me to, yeah, this is how it goes. Right. One of the things that I beat the drum about with new freelancers is this tendency to hide in content marketing. So they will spend hours, you know, writing their blog posts and posting on LinkedIn and all of those things, which are, which are great and fine, but it's, it's a way to feel like you're doing something without the fear of rejection. But the problem is that, you know, especially with today's world where we're absolutely inundated with content, the chances of somebody seeing your particular blog post, the chances of somebody who can actually hire you seeing your blog post is so minuscule. And, you know, there really is no other way to go about it except for outreach. But, you know, at the, at the beginning stages when you're just starting out. But I think, you know, that is where a lot of that emotional friction comes into play because it's, it's so enticing to not have that, you know, supposed rejection, right? And so this is this is where people just get caught up over and over again. And and it, and it's funny to me because they they come to me and they ask different variations of the same theme. It's like, okay, well, I'm not gonna do blogging, but can I optimize my website? No, <laughs> no, it's still the same thing, right? The outreach is the thing. Like you basically have to make a shortcut between where you are now and where people will actually know you exist. That that really is the issue. But it's really hard for people. Really, really hard. It is for sure. And so for you, when you're working with people on this, there's the experiment idea that we've talked about. But what other tricks or, or tips or things have you found help? to get people to get past that, that fear, you know, piece and become willing to, to take action and to do the outreach and to take those risks. So one thing that is huge, and I hear it over and over again, is the normalization part. It's the fact that when I tell them that when I do these outreach campaigns, my stats are whatever they are for that last campaign, right? And most people just have this amazed reaction. It's like, really? It's not everybody that says yes? I'm like, no, 90% will say nothing. I mean, I'll actually have to, yes, I am in the same bucket. I will have to follow up, right? Just like everybody else does. So I think the normalization is huge. The other thing that I keep promising them is that desensitization will happen. So the first time you send out an email, you're freaked out. The second time you're probably freaked out. The tenth time, you're like, oh, there was a typo there. Eh, right. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> Almost. I mean, you're right. not you're not loving the fact that there's a typo, but 
it's 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 the 10th and i will send another 20 out anyway and i'll fix the typo and that will be that so that is really the thing that you're working towards in a way it's that you know it's the diminution of of that acute stress and panic which is another form of normalization right of the experience and of the feelings yes. that, that go yes. with it and you might even get to the point like one of i one of my favorite things as far as anybody out in the in the business world was was how michael port took typos and rather than get embarrassed about him basically like bragged about it right he was like it's my gift to you <laughs> it's like that's such a great way of reframing it i love that i yeah whenever i see that on his emails i was just oh this is this makes my day really super super smart right okay so when we get folks doing things like content marketing, right? I'm just going to put a bunch of stuff out there. This kind of gets back to what you were talking about at the beginning, the idea of working harder versus working smarter, right? And so tell me for you, how do you manage that balance of harder versus smarter? Like, how do you determine what's smart and how do you balance work and recovery so that you can stay away from, from burnout and, you know, and keep being productive? So in some ways, I think of myself as a racehorse or as a sprinter in that, you know, I do these short bursts of activity and then I, you know, go out and graze and just, you know, <laughs> just hang out. You know, it's a lot of times you realize whether or not you've worked smarter in retrospect. And the idea is to make a mistake once, learn from it, and then make another mistake, but not make the same one again. So, you know, I did spend a year writing posts for LinkedIn on a weekly basis. It was really hard for me, even though I know some people that are posting daily and I just don't even understand that. But for me, even weekly, you know, there were a lot of times where I posted because I made that commitment, but I didn't feel very good about what I was posting. It, it felt almost like spam. I did get two clients out of it, but, you know, after a year, I looked back at it and I said, you know, this is this is a waste of my time. This is not how I'm going to go forward doing this thing. Right. So and, and so I stopped. Now, some people actually enjoy posting and that's their of creative writing and, you know, all the more power to them. But for me, I think the combination or or being on that edge between writing something personal or semi-personal and trying to make it content marketing and, and just making it short enough to fit into that. It's just the whole thing was just off, right? And that just didn't work. And so I actually, I think the thing that I finally thought through is how how many people do you actually need? How many clients do you actually need, right? And as I said, it's it's a handful. How are you going to get those clients? Right. What is what is the easiest and simplest way? And for me, a lot of it is it feels random because it's it's more of a social thing. But I meet people, I talk to them, you know, we we interact on a human level. And eventually some of those connections turn into business connections or they refer me to somebody else. And some it's just a plain direct, you know, direct interaction, direct outreach. Those are the things that work for me. Those are the things that are easiest for me. And so those are the things that I do. Makes sense. So an important part that I'm hearing here is you having the real clarity of the outcome that you're kind of seeking, right? Here's how many clients I need. Here's all of that. And then working backwards from there. And I think it, it seems like sometimes folks can get caught up in taking the kind of the more is better approach. And they're like, we're just going to throw as much stuff out there as we can and we'll catch whatever we catch. And I think that's where 
being deliberate about what you want is really important. I think for a lot of people, the one of the challenges that they they have is we, we live in a very noisy world of like messages coming from everywhere about what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. We have to do this. We can't do that. This is good. This, right? How have you learned to tune those voices out? Unsubscribing for a, from a whole host of of newsletters is one. You know, it's tough. It's really tough because especially if you're floating in the world of internet marketing, these people are great. A lot of people are very, very good at marketing. And so, you know, and I suspect that I am one of the best avatar profiles they could possibly have psychographically because, oh, it's new. It's an interesting idea. This makes sense to me. You know, let me learn more about this or that or this other thing. But I think it actually takes constant vigilance to not be inundated with the noise. And again, I think for me, it's whenever I get caught up in this feeling of, oh, you know, this course is something I desperately need or that course is something. I always going to, these days, I pause and I think, what is the purpose of this, right? What what need is it going to fill? Because these cor- these marketing campaigns are really triggering a lot of insecurity and this feeling that I don't know what I need to know, right? But when you actually stop for a moment and you think about, okay, what are they going to teach you? They are going to teach you, let's say, a new ad campaign technique, whatever, right? How does that work for my business purpose, right? I mean, how business goals, like how does, am I actually going to run ads to get clients? No. Am I going to run ads for some random business I don't know that I'm going to start yet? Maybe, but I don't even know what business I'm going to start, you know, and I don't know if it's going to be ad driven. So why am I seriously considering taking this course? Right. And so, but, but as I said, it's, it's a, that kind of loop is constant in my brain. Whenever I see something new, whenever I, whenever I think about, or I read a a blog post or whatever, um, not going down the rabbit hole requires me to be vigilant, very vigilant. So yeah, a real deliberate checking back of, you know, this is all well and good and it's cool and it's bright and it's shiny, but what relation does it have to a problem or a need that I currently have? Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's such an important practice for us all to develop, especially as the world gets again, noisier and noisier and people get better and better at finding ways to, you know, to kind of engage some of, shall we say, our more vulnerable, some of the more vulnerable parts of our, of our brain. not always in a way that serves us. Cool. Okay. So if you're up for it, I wanted to see if we could switch gears for a minute and talk about something that's currently challenging you in your work and explore around that. Would that be, that'd be all right? Sure. Okay. So, so then take a minute, tell me what is like a current challenge or obstacle that you are facing and kind of wrestling with a little bit in your work? So one of the things that I'm wrestling with is structuring my days, actually time blocking my days. You know, I tend to be the kind of person that if a client calls, I pick up the phone and I love my clients to death, but ever so often it's just, no, really, I, I really should not have picked up the phone because I have a deadline and this is now going to put me into a huge amount of stress. So, so that, that's the biggest issue for me. It's, you know, I can, I can time block in theory and then you look 
back at the week and you're like, yeah, that that was just a pretty picture that you drew on, on the calendar with different <laughs> colors and it's, it's very pretty, has nothing to do with reality. Mm-hmm. So you have the concept down, right? Okay, here's what it's, here's how it's supposed to be, but it doesn't necessarily work, at least not yet. Right. So what do you think is the obstacle at this point to getting it to work? It's not that you don't know what it is or again, in theory, how to do it. What's what's interfering between theory and practice, do you think? I think some of it is client driven in a sense that, you know, they, they throw things at me that may not be quite in sync with my calendar. Some of it is myself just for the time that I block out for myself. I then tend to treat it more of a playtime or it doesn't really matter what I do time right? As opposed to actually holding myself accountable to my own deadlines the way I would to a client's deadline. That's an issue. So it sounds like you might need to hire yourself as a client. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I probably should. The other, the other thing that comes to mind for me is, can you take, because you were talking a bit ago about how you've learned to become more uh, thoughtful and deliberate and conscious in you know what kind of work you take on, who you work with. So I'm wondering what aspects of that deliberateness and consciousness you might be able to bring to this this current challenge of time blocking to help it to be something that you can can be kind of more deliberate and mindful about. Right. I think that's a very good point because what I'm finding is that what slowly has become non-negotiable is, for example, my exercise time, right? I actually time block that and that is now a non-negotiable. Now, the amount of effort and gamification it took <laughs> to get me to see this thing as non-negotiable is pretty remarkable in retrospect, but it is now as important as anything, any external deadline on my calendar. But this is a, a process, definitely. Now, the, as it relates to the exercise, you're, you know, the getting it set up. Yeah. Lots of effort, lots of work. Once it's set up, how much effort is it to maintain though? It's, it was for the first few weeks because it wasn't a habit yet, but now it's pretty automatic. And, and that's the other thing it's, it's, you know, dialing it in. It's the fact that like, what do I associate it was before or after mostly before. And then once, once all of that was dialed in, then, then it's, you know, then it's easy. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, yeah. So I think that that too, right. That awareness of what I can get this as it relates to other things in your schedule, right. I can get this dialed in. I can do the experimentation again, right. With trying different things, trial and error, getting it dialed in. And once I do, this is going to, it's going to work. It's going to be smooth for you. How connected are you to the sense of like how this time blocking idea how do you feel like that's going to improve your work once it's implemented? What's the difference that's going to make? It's really, I believe, it's really going to make it easier to concentrate on the thing in front of me as opposed to constantly having this sense of like, oh, let me not forget to do X or Y. It's it's like everything will have its own little space and that that will make a big difference right that's i think the thing when we're in the midst of trying to work on trying to establish something that's bumpy and it's new and it's uncomfortable it's like oh this is just hard and we're focused on the hard part and we do can do better when we recognize right it's like we've got to we've got to connect with like future future us that's like hey this is awesome here's what's going on i'm so much more dialed in i'm focused i'm more productive and that ties back to again where we started for you which was 
working smarter and not harder, which is, you know, this, this mission piece. And so I think it, it makes total sense. This all connects. I think it's just about for you figuring out how do I stay in tune with that or right? Stay connected with that. Oh yeah, this is, this is all aligned with my mission and my message. Absolutely. I think in a way, I think also the, the piece that is important for me to internalize is this paradoxic idea that structure gives you freedom, right? It's this idea that the more discipline you have in terms of your own schedule, the more you can then go on and do other things, different things, bigger things. Absolutely. And that is, it is, well, there's a lot of things about humans that are paradoxical, I find, but this is one of the big ones, I think, is that, yeah, that structure does give us freedom because we have less to worry about, less to think about, and it really lets our brain put all of its energy into, you know, a more focused space. And, you know, so it's, go ahead. I think the other thing that I noticed is that time blocking may not have been that critical when I wasn't this busy. So in a way, the more successful you become, especially when you're running your own business, the more it becomes critical to create these structures and these systems. And I know that I'm not saying anything totally new, but in a way, it really is almost being a victim of your own success, where before, if you had a project a week or a project a month, yeah, it doesn't matter when you schedule it as long as you get it done. But when you're juggling multiple clients, when you're juggling multiple responsibilities, then it becomes very easy to drown in work that you don't even necessarily need to do if you're not careful about structuring your day. This is an example of one of those areas where the, the challenge of growth is whenever we grow or do more or add more, we end up with new challenges, right? And often our sticking point is the point at which we don't continue to grow or evolve to handle those new challenges. And that's what I'm hearing for you is this is kind of your current growth point is that I am now busy enough. I have enough going on that I have to bring increased structure to what I'm doing so that I'm able to, you know, to have the time and energy to do these things. Right. You know, it's funny because I've, I've heard people say that before who were, you know, on that curve ahead of me and I and I would kind of poo-poo it and go, eh, structure is for other people. I am creative or whatever it is that I was saying to myself. And now I'm finding that, oh, that's what they meant. Oh, I do need structure. Okay. Right. Well, so I'll, I'll, I'll be looking forward to your, to your next novel then as you find some structured time to work on that too. <laughs> it's not about the time. It's about the muse and the inspiration. Is it? <laughs> Maybe it's an essay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it actually isn't. So not, not to, not to give you more to do Maria, but if, if people want to learn more about you or get in touch, what is the, the best way and place for them to do so? So they can find me on LinkedIn. It's my profile is under my own name, Maria Rogowski. They can email me Maria at swimmingotter.com. Those are the two best ways to get in touch. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's always good to good to connect and, and talk to you. And yeah, I, I, am, I am looking forward to that next novel. So hopefully we'll see that before too long. No pressure. <laughs> well, thank you very much. This This has been a real pleasure.
That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward.